Ladies and gents, today we got a good one. James Cook, America's Director of Research Retail for JLL. We talked about a lot of things and James brought a tremendous amount of value. A couple of things we covered, um, e-commerce versus physical retail, Class C malls being repurposed and redeveloped, automation in physical retail stores, and then just predictions and trends that he's seeing moving forward. Let's get into it. James, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm so excited to be here, Danny. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. Um, can you just give yourself a, a little introduction as far as what that title means, what you, you're focusing on on a day-to-day, kind of what, what's your world like? Yeah, so JLL is a big company, and I kind of focus on a very small part of that. So I work like a commercial real estate services company, but specifically the kind of clients that I work with are retailers and shopping center owners and developers um, doing things like, um, you know, helping them think about what the future of retail might hold. So I like to tell people that um, my job is to think about the future of retail. Um, It's funny, um, when I kind of started this career, it was thinking about 10, 15, 20 years in the future. When COVID hit, uh, it was like people were like, hey, James, what's going to happen next week? So <laughs> the the scale really went down. Thankfully, Danny, we're talking at a time where it feels like things are normalizing again. So I'm thinking big picture again. I'm really excited about thinking into the future of retail. Yeah, no, that that is exciting. And Thinking back to those COVID times, it seemed like years were becoming compressed down into weeks. So it's probably uh, good that you were thinking years out because you you were prepared. Um, yeah, no, the 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 state of the whole industry seems to. I'm trying to get a grip on it. For a, the longest time, I've heard retail is dying, retail is done, like it's it's no more e-commerce is here. But it seems like retail has been sticking around. Um, and it's, I, I look at, I was looking at some of the research and it seems like it's been growing actually. I, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but what are you seeing as far as trends and kind of just, um, the overall, uh, landscape? Yeah. I mean, if you ask person on the street and say, Hey, how much retail do you think happens online? Give me a percentage. People would say, you know, 50%, 60%, 90% sometimes. But the truth is it's really low. It's about 13% of all retail sales um, occur online. Now when COVID hit, that went up. So we had basically like a three month period during the lockdowns where there was a bounce in online but it's been trending down every quarter since then. Um, retail sales as a whole are growing. It's been really good. You know, we've seen a retail uh, economy boom just right through COVID pretty much. Um, but bricks and mortar retail is growing much faster than online now. And a lot of people don't realize that. So the overall percentage, they're, they're both growing, but the overall percentage of, of um Online sales as a percentage of all retail sales has actually been shrinking for um, really since uh, 2020. Hmm. And what do you attribute the the growth of the bricks and mortar coming back? Is it the same types of stores that are coming back and growing or has there been a, a reshuffling of the types of stores or um, what, what kind of factors are included in that? Yeah, so 
one of the interesting things that we saw is traditionally in the past decade or so, a lot of our retail sales, like our discretionary income dollars, have gone towards services like experiences, hospitality, going out to a, a sit-down restaurant, going to the movies. All that went away. So all of our retail sales switched to goods and just the services dried up. So the places where these goods are sold that people want to get and they want to get them now, that's where they're buying them. So that's where the physical dominance came into place. Um, so, I mean, early days of COVID, it was just the grocery store, but that quickly changed. We saw a huge boom in um, home goods, a huge boom in hard, like hardware stores and DIY stores. So, you know, like Home Depot and Lowe's. And uh, people were not spending money on vacation. They were spending money on home improvement projects. And um, in the early days, before we had these supply chain issues, um, people would order stuff online. But most of a lot of it was going in and doing click and collect, which many retailers um, uh, still consider in-store sales because you're actually buying it from that store, even though you're, you know, uh, purchasing it, you know, in an online setting. Um, but a lot of people just wanted to get stuff immediately. So they'd get it in stores. Um, big box stores are bigger. Uh, there's more airspace between you and the other people. So it doesn't feel crowded. So people felt okay about doing that. Um, now that we've had a lot of supply chain issues, um, shoppers aren't as comfortable shopping online for things that they need by a certain time. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, I had to buy, um, what was it? I had to buy something uh, for my wife and it was like, oh, I'm totally blanking. Let's just say it was a knife sharpener, right? And online there's like 20 or 30 different kinds to choose from. There was only one for sale in the store. I just bought that one because it was the one that was there and I knew I would have it in my, it's like a bird in the hand. So there's a lot of that sales that's been going to um to bricks and mortar retail hmm. so with the experiential side of things is that commercial space is that being um converted into um goods like retail goods type space or is that what is that being repurposed into so it was a temporary pullback in spending so we saw, like, if you want to talk about restaurants, we saw some restaurants close. Um, some of these experiential places, you know, anything, I don't know, like your bounce house or your movie theater, some of them closed. The ones with corporate owners that had deep pockets that could power through um, the worst of COVID have kind of come out now on the other side. We haven't seen the shift in real estate so much. Um, and now we're starting to see a resurgence in those purchasing of, you know, services. Prediction is this summer that really takes off. A part of that being a lot of people feeling comfortable to go on vacation again. And that's often the time where you're going to, you know, eat out, go see a show, do things like that. And, and with all those restaurants and stuff closing, besides the ones with deep pockets, are you expecting a, a resurgence of new businesses and new, new restaurants coming up? Or do you think 
the past two years have scared away any sort of entrepreneurial um, spirit? Uh, they have not. In fact, um, a lot of uh, restaurateurs that uh, you know lost their jobs have now gone on to start new F and B businesses. Now, some of them might not be, um, you know, a physical location. It might be like a food truck. It might be like a um, catering or delivery or something like that, or something we call a ghost kitchen, which is like a virtual restaurant. But um, most of those restaurant spaces that did close have been released to other tenants. Um, so we've seen a real resurgence. In fact, my team, one of the research reports we're working on right now that's going to be publishing uh, next month is on the resurgence, the recovery in sit-down dining. Mm. Are you seeing that people are feeling more comfortable and there's not as much fear or, and that sort of thing or any early yeah findings? absolutely yeah and that's not just anecdotal i don't have the survey data in front of me but um morning consult for example runs regular surveys there's a few others asking people how comfortable they are about you know um eating in a restaurant and uh it was really great and then we had the what was the most recent variant the omicron variant really took a chunk out of it um, but it is recovering again to the point where more than well more well more than half of Americans now feel comfortable with indoor dining um, I'm gonna guess and say like 65 percent and growing um, and I wouldn't be surprised at all that by the summertime that's you know up to 80 percent through this whole experience um, have there been any health and safety protocols that were instituted during the pandemic that you think are here to stay moving forward yeah, and so funny. I one of the big groups that I work with here at JLL is the folks that manage shopping centers. So we we don't own shopping centers, but we do third party management um, for others. Um, so a lot of malls and open air centers. So I was kind of privy to all of the new stuff that people had that shopping center managers and store managers had to do, you know, from, you know, we have to do more disinfecting uh, sequencing and, you know, we have to put up plexiglass and, you know, the dots on the floor to make sure that people are spaced. Um, some of that stuff seems like it's going to stay. Some of the plexiglass stuff um, seems like, hey, let's just leave it up. Um, I think there'll be a point where, um, employees for the most part are probably going to do away with the mask. Um, I think that mandate, you know, cause a lot of national retailers still mandate that their employees wear masks, even if most of their customers aren't. Um, I think the overall change, the holdover is going to be this sort of a little bit of uncomfortableness with, um, closeness of human beings you know it's like it's like a little bit of you know kind of pre-covid you, know, you go into a packed new york restaurant or something like that and everybody's jammed up against the bar and you feel fine about it, at least i did and there's a lot more of that second thinking about it so i think restaurants and retailers are going to be thinking more about open space Restaurants, for example, I think this is going to be a holdover, is transforming a lot of that sidewalk and street space into dining areas. So kind of spilling out 
into the street, which every everyone has kind of realized is great, and I and I really hope that sticks around. Yeah, yeah. I, I, going out to eat prior to COVID, it did sometimes feel like I was sitting with some random couple because they're so <laughs> so tight. So I wonder if um, having that outdoor seating space if it's really just maintaining the revenue that they were doing prior, or do you think they've been able to increase um, capacity and ultimately increase their profits because of it? Or is that more just like, um, level? well, I would say, and this is a pretty broad statement, but most of the restaurants that I've talked to, like we're kind of talking about like more independent, you know, restaurants, their bat, their revenues are back to pre COVID levels. Um, they're doing pretty well. Um, so the kind of the math with the opening up outdoor dining, uh, that just allowed them to barely float along because the inside was either closed or at really low capacity. So they're now almost all restaurants that I can think of are back at full capacity. And some of them have continued to use that street dining. Um, they're not as, they're not quite, I wouldn't say they're quite as busy as um, they were pre-COVID, but prices have gone up a little. Uh, so the, if you just look at, we're talking about profit, but if you look at the revenue numbers, I think they're in line with pre-COVID at, at most uh, like sit-down restaurants. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of prices going up, um, what what's the overall sentiment right now? With I mean, we're inflation's at a forty-year all-time high, and then now with uh, you know, all this crazy world, you know, crisis happening in Ukraine. Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty. How does that affect retail and just shopping and commerce in general? Yeah, I mean, the inflation is really tough. And uh, it's really COVID caused. Uh, it's the, just because of this disruption of global supply chains. We've spent the past 10 or 20 years um, perfecting this just-in-time delivery of, of goods and, and parts of goods that we use in manufacturing. And it's just been so disrupted um, that it's made a lot of the inputs that go into the things we buy more expensive. And, um, you know, it's not great. And it's gonna be, it's gonna take a little bit of time uh, for us to recover. I mean, I'm not an inflation expert, but from what I've heard, um, expect the earliest for inflation to change sometime this summer, realistically sometime next year. In the meantime, where inflation is the highest is gas and um, food, the cost of food, which uh, for somebody who's like, you know, upper middle class, not a big deal. Okay, I spend five, 10% more on food, you know, I can, I can swing it. Um, but if you're a family with a budget, um, and you're already, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, um, having, you know, the cost of gas go up, um, the cost of food go up, it really, it starts to create some difficult choices. So, I mean, that's what worries me the most about inflation. Not, not that it's going to be a long-term problem for years and years, um, but that in at least the short term, the next maybe the next year, it's going to push some difficult choices for 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 families that have low incomes. Have you 
seen any trends of how businesses are trying to adapt to literally the the inflation to help make their products, good services more affordable, whether it's um, more like buy now, pay later, or um, just repackaging or how, how are, how can companies help still kind of be that bridge until um, inflation is more under control? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all of the above. You mentioned the the ex sort of explosion of new buy now, pay later apps, and I think that um, those services certainly help a little bit in the short term. You know, um, if you can pay for something in installments, it makes it easier to purchase. Um, ultimately, it's very similar to having a credit card, though, so. Uh, there's the danger there of it affecting your, uh, you know, your credit score if you don't pay for it. I know they're starting to report to to um, credit rating agencies now. Um, from the sort of retailer and restaurant side, um, some places have said, "Hey, we're going to pull back on the number of employees that we have working." Um, really tough to do if you're a grocery store or a restaurant, though, um, because those just require a lot of hands-on work. Um, some restaurants have done some creative things around simplifying their menus. So the labor required to, um, there isn't as much labor required to prepare them. Um, another thing I've seen uh, in some cases is automation um, behind the scenes. So it might be silly, like there's a Oh my gosh, what chain is it? I think it's White Castle that's rolling out a burger flipping robot in like a hundred locations. Don't quote me on that, but it was it's one of the chains um, that's rolling out a burger flipping robot. And there are other less crazy automated things out there um, that all help contain costs to a certain extent. But at the end of the day. Um, uh, costs are just going to have to go up. There's nothing you can do about it. It's either in, increase the cost or reduce the size of, of what you're selling. So that's the other thing too. Pa I think you mentioned packaging. So, um, you know, shrink the, keep the price the same, but shrink the amount of say potato chips that are in the mm -hmm. bag. Yeah. That, that seems like it's constantly happening. It's like, what, this is it's all a bunch of air in here. Um, you touched on automation and, um, yeah, is there, I've, you know, I used to work in the cleaning industry and um, they were coming out with, you know, uh, cleaning robots or at the time, this was, this was maybe five, 10 years, five, five-ish years ago. Um, that was kind of the big hype that like uh, autonomous cleaners that they, you know, would be doing the floors at night and um, save costs that way. Is there any sort of automation that you think besides the burger flippers um, that you think really has a chance to um, really help businesses become more efficient and effective, right? Efficient. Yeah. And it's going to be sort of, well, some, I was going to say it's going to be a little bit behind the scenes stuff, sort of like, it's not like a robot's going to take over a human's job, but it, there'll be elements that they'll simplify. I mean, an example would be um, there's a grocery chain called Schnooks. Um, that's rolled out um, a robot that just cruises up and down the aisles. It's like a, 
it's like a tall monolith on wheels, and all it does is cruise up and down the aisles, taking photos of the shelves. And because of that, they've got um, instant, you know, inventory on their, uh, you know, on their, uh, you know, the manager has uh, total awareness of the inventory, and um, the employees are aware of when stuff needs restocked or stuff is misshelved. Um, so because of that, you can, um, it's less work because just keeping track of inventory is such a pain, um, for, um, uh, you know, like the regular store associate. So if they can get that off their plate and have, you know, a robot do that, um, that's great. Um, I am, uh, so I do a podcast called, uh, where we buy, um, just about sort of like future retail topics episode that hasn't come out yet, but I just did, um, is about RFID, um, which is radio frequency identification, I think. So these little stickers that go on all the goods you sell in the store, and basically you just wave a wand on the shelves, and basically the computer knows everything that's on the shelves. So it's a way to do total inventory. And it's already really rolled out in a lot of a lot of stores and we just don't even realize it. So suddenly you don't have to pay somebody to keep track of inventory. It's just a matter of waving a wand around for like 20 minutes a day. Um, and you've got all of that in your computer. Oh, and the other cool thing about RFID is um, if you, uh, it, it can track what's going in and out of the store. So, you know, if people are stealing things, um, which is a huge problem, uh, organized retail theft has really blown up since COVID, but that's another, that's a whole other story. Um, but anyway, I didn't know a lot about RFID and I'm now because of working on this podcast convinced that it's like a quiet revolution in retail that people don't even realize is going on. Mm. Yeah. I guess I think about when I go shopping for clothes, they sometimes have that RFID tag on there, but it's, it's so big and bulky and it seems like it's, it would be, you know, I'm just guessing like one of those probably costs a buck or something, but to put an RFID little miniature one on a, like a can of soup, is, is that, that's kind of like the progression? Yeah. So the, yeah, yeah. So the big ones that you're talking about, and I know what you're talking about, I think those are like loss prevention, like those will set off alarms. These are like little like stamp size stickers and they cost, um, what do they cost? They're like four or five cents each. Um, so if you're selling clothing, that's not really eating too badly into your profits. If you're selling something at the dollar store, it might not make sense, um, to use it, but it's so RFID. It's funny. Like you should just listen to the podcast because the ex Marshall K uh, who works for a company company called RFID Sherpas uh, is the expert uh, that I interviewed on that. Um, you know, he just said that uh, it's pretty much everywhere in apparel now and it's coming to electronics and, you know, certain retailers um, are mandating that all of the things that they sell, the manufacturer puts that tag, embeds it in the goods that they sell. Wow. Now I'd like to move on to a little bit of a broader topic and just like, it seems like you're really, you're in tune with um, what's going on. You got your finger on the pulse over the last two years. Like what has surprised you most or what, what has, um, yeah, whether it's a surprise or just kind of like 
uh, like made you go wow like does anything come to mind <laughs> i mean i certainly could never have predicted the last two years and you know it just and uh, well one thing that was really surprising to me danny is when covid hit i was so unrealistic about how long it would take <laughs> to get out of it <laughs> I was like private. I wasn't. I don't think I wrote any reports about it, but I think privately I was like, uh, by this summer, we're we're gonna be good. Uh, everything's gonna open it back up in the summer, and it's just been such a long haul. Um, I was I was surprised. Um, I'll tell you, I thought that retail would have taken more of a hit than it did. Um, some sectors took a real bad hit, like movie theaters are only now really starting to recover. Um, but most sectors, I mean, once they were allowed to reopen, um, it was kind of a slow recovery at first. Um, but yeah, I can't think of any sectors that I would say are really still struggling. Even fitness is getting back there to pre COVID levels. It's not quite there yet. Um, but uh, yeah, it's mo- it's the movie theaters that are still the revenues growing, but you, we need a few more of um, what was the big one? Uh, Spider Man did like I don't know, like half a billion or something in box office. You need some big IP hits that bring people back to the theater for full recovery. So, do you think there that we're past the the phase where uh, like? the second shoe was going to drop. I remember for a while, people kind of thought the stimulus checks and all that was a band-aid approach. And that is what was falsely boosting the economy. Do you think when, as you see these things coming back, are they being, are they coming back on a, a, a firm foundation? Yeah, I think so. I don't think that the stimulus checks were so, they were so big that they falsely, propped up the economy i mean it was like i mean most of that went to people who needed it you know <laughs> and it was good for the economy and it was good for american families too um i don't i haven't I certainly haven't seen it in the numbers i mean the stimulus of checks have been gone for a while and yeah. retail sales continue to grow i think the real stimulus has been that the wages have gone up in like quote unquote lower wage jobs have really seen wages go up um, in a way that I'd never seen before. And I think that's the real, you know, sort of stimulus right now. Mm. And is that because employment has just been so tight or is that, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, you know, when COVID hit a lot of, um, you know, say retailers or, you know, whatever it was, um, had to furlough people, um, sometimes without pay, often without pay or let them go completely. And a lot of those people kind of got themselves into situations where, eh, you know, now I'm going to be a, you know, part-time Uber driver, or I'm going to do this and that. I'm going to take care of, I'm going to move back home, take care of my parents, move in with some friends and their life state life changed. So when these jobs started opening up, it wasn't like a faucet. That you could turn back on suddenly all these employees magically reappear as if rip van, rip van winkle so there was this huge demand also from e-commerce was another one so a lot of big e-commerce warehouses opened up that needed people to work at them and uh 
just demand from every sector for for workers and uh, not enough people to go around. So yeah, supply and demand, wages go up, and uh, that's how it works. I I want to ask one thing about e-commerce and retail or bricks bricks and mortar. Um, do you view those two as competitors, or is there a place for each, and they can um, coexist peacefully? Yeah, you know it's funny when it way back in the day uh, when I started being a retail researcher, I think there was a real sense of competition um, because you really had companies that were like, "We're just online retailers," and other companies that were like, "Yep, we just sell stuff in stores." Now that's almost never the case. Um, every, with a few exceptions, uh, with yeah, just a few I can think of. Every every a uh, retailer that has a store also sells online and a growing percentage of their sales, you know, are going online. And then a lot of the um, online only brands uh, have opened up a bunch of stores. I mean, you take, for example, Warby Parker, when they launched selling glasses through the mail, they're like, yeah, we're online only. We're never going to open stores. Flash forward to today. I think like 50% of their revenue comes from their stores that are mostly in malls, like the most traditional place you can put a store. Um, so anyway, my point, I think, is that one isn't better than the other. It's all part of one strategy online and in store. And um, really, it's not a battle. It's about getting the right mix for every individual retailer. Mm. Yeah, I've even noticed uh, when I was Christmas shopping, Amazon has started to open up physical retail stores, four four stars and above, or something like that. And I was like, "Well, that's interesting." Okay, so yeah, it, it's it's complimentary. Yeah, it's it's um, cool. Okay, um, let's see a couple other questions. Um, just as far as the housing market has gone, absolutely gangbusters are you seeing the same with retail are you seeing that it's hard for shops to find space what what are you noticing as far as the whole real estate landscape for commercial yeah it's a little bit different than housing because housing is really a story of lack of supply in a lot of places the demand is like higher than the supply in retail like the past Leading up to the Great Recession, like of 2008, 2009, we built a lot of retail space, a lot. And then that recession hit, a lot of that went vacant. So we haven't really been building a lot of retail space. I mean, you know, some's been going up, but not a lot. And so because of that, we've had this, we've, we've had this supply of retail space that's continued to get absorbed. That's what the term that we use, absorption. And vacancies continue to go down. I think vacancy is at a healthy level um, where there is kind of now an equal, equilibrium between supply of retail space and demand. That being said, there's certain areas where demand is way bigger. So one example is dry, like uh, a fast food location that you could do drive through at. Like everybody wants to do drive through now because during COVID, um, a bunch of chains that never did drive through started to. Um, they all said, hey, we're going to do smaller locations, but they're going to have one, two, three drive through lanes. They're going to have a digital pickup window. So those 
you know, cute, what we call QSR, quick service restaurant spaces in the suburbs where everybody's at because they're working from home. Huge demand for those, much less supply than was out there. So that was a big push. Um, and then like grocery stores, you know, um, those were obviously during COVID like of uh, because they were just deemed of it as essential retail. Um, just a huge kind of demand for those. And now I'm talking from an investor standpoint, somebody who's going to buy and sell a shopping center as an investment. The biggest demand in retail has been for grocery anchored centers. And that's where all the value is because people think of that as, you know, that is a stable investment. You know, people love their groceries. You're going to continue to need to get, get your groceries. Um, anyway, Final point I'll make is that going forward, we're not going to see a lot of new malls being opened in the U.S. We'll only see shopping centers open up whenever there's a new neighborhood, so there's a new development to serve them. We're not going to have all this crazy overbuilding that we saw back in the beginning of the, like in the in 2005, you know, through 2009. What we will see is mixed-use development. So there's a lot of these projects going on that have a mix of residential and office um, and oftentimes hotel and then retail, usually on the ground floor or the first few floors. And the retail is kind of the fun amenity and the office space and the residential space is where the developer makes their money. I'm just thinking about it now as you, you mentioned that these grocery stores are going to be the anchor. It seems like whenever I go to our local grocery stores, Cub Foods, there's always a, a Target and usually um, a Home Depot next to them, you know, and maybe a Petco or something. Is that could that be what these malls that have you know maybe local retailers that have gone under could could we start moving towards like a local like a local mall? I live a block away from one. There's so many vacancies in it where it's like these boutique. Home Depot store, like a boutique Home Depot, boutique Petco, you know what I mean? Like, is that possible or or not? Yeah, I mean, it is. And some some chains are looking at that. So, like, for example, one big, big box is Ikea. And they're rolling out these, like, smaller boutique idea, Ikeas that are mostly, um, don't carry a lot of goods. It's more like services, you know, going into Ikea for them to help you design your kitchen and stuff like that. Um, but they're not going to the malls mostly. They're going into like urban locations. Um, for malls, I mean, so the big vacancy is not the is not the mom and pop stores. It's the department stores that we saw a ton of department stores close um, during COVID. And so what it has caused is a bifurcation in malls. And so there's like a class A mall, which um, might have, uh, you know, a higher end department store is the anchor. You know, it's going to have the fancy, it's going to have an Apple store. 100% it has an Apple store in it. Um, and it has all the best stuff. And the vacancy is great. There's no worries because when something goes out, somebody else wants to move in, they're good to go. It's what we call B- and really, actually, C malls are the worst. So those are the malls that, and you know it, it's kind of like the the mall that's on its last leg and, and maybe one of the department stores is vacant. And they're going to have real trouble backfilling that, you know, 100,000 square feet of department store space or even more than that. Um, 
And so we've seen this real bifurcation and the, the good malls have stayed good and the bad malls have gotten worse. And when I say worse, I just mean more, more vacant. And so they're going to really have to reinvent what they do. And you'd mentioned like Home Depot, not a bad idea. Like that would be a cool, I think that would be a great mall anchor. Um, we've seen a little bit of that where these big box, traditionally um, what we call power center tenants, have some of them have moved to malls, but a lot of them are saying, I'm not sure. I would rather be in this open air power center where I know I can do well. So if it's not these big box retailers moving into the malls, who else do you think would be, or how else could these malls be repurposed? Yeah. So, um, and again, like there's like the A mall, which is the best mall. What city? Say, do you say live like in? a B or a C. I live in Minneapolis. Okay. Okay. So mall of America, you're good to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, Rosedale, good yeah, to go. Right, right. <laughs> uh, um, but you've got a mall, the C mall. What do you do with it? There's a couple of different routes. All of them are expensive. <laughs> so one thing is let's, um, put a bunch of money into it and attract some cool new anchor tenants. And maybe we turn it into, we demall it. So we'll turn it into a lifestyle center, which is, like um, an outdoor open air kind of hip center. Um, really expensive to do. Um, tough to make the economics for that work. Another option is let's change the use up. Let's take an, the anchor and turn it into apartments. Also very expensive to do. Um, another option is let's turn it into a medical center. We've seen that happen in a couple of places where they'll keep the food court, but you'll take the anchor and turn it maybe like uh, into medical office space or um, actually like some kind of, you know, not urgent care, but like, um, you know, you go and there'll be like the one office where you do your joint pain and the next office over has the physical therapy, that kind of stuff. Um, so like medical services. Um, and we've seen some reuses of malls where that makes sense. Um, another one is just straight up office space. Um, uh, in uh, Los Angeles, there's um, most of a mall that is now office space that um, actually Google has has some office, office in. So there's a lot of uses. Unfortunately, um, it's expensive to do everything. So uh, construction wise, got to tear stuff down, build new stuff up. So whatever is going to be in demand is what's gonna happen. But if that mall was built in a not great high demand area, it's tough to make the economics make sense. Have you seen any of these malls turn into like this, like Amazon or Walmart distribution centers? Is that a thing? Yeah. Um, e like e-commerce distribution. Yeah. Um, definitely. It is kind of tough to do like, so E-commerce uh, warehouse distribution comes in a lot of different flavors, but if you're an e-commerce brand, you have a huge space, say half a million square feet to a million square feet with really high ceilings. So you can stack stuff like crazy high and it just goes on for miles and you've got all this stuff. So whoever orders whatever they want in the area can get it quickly. It is very difficult to take, say, a department store and turn it into that because there's columns and the ceilings aren't high enough and all that stuff. So 
if you want to do that, you've got to tear it down and build up a new industrial space in its place, which does happen um, with some frequency now that industrial space, like vacancy for industrial is so low right now. Um, but another thing that we've seen happen is developers will come in and take a retail big box and convert it into last mile. And so last mile is um, not a huge warehouse, but a little one where retailers will, um, you know, deliver stuff in small, you know, vans like cargo vans to you in your home. And that could be something like, I don't know, like, uh, um, you know, familiar with like Joker and GoPuff that are doing these like two hour or one hour convenience store kind of deliveries. Um, or it could be something, you know, you know, direct to consumer uh, chain or something like that. But um, I think that that last mile fulfillment is probably the best use for like a, you know, a vacant retail box in sort of an urban area. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, as we wrap up here, I guess I just want to ask one, one last question um, regarding kind of the malls and commercial space in general. And we have a lot of facility managers that we work with in, in our audience. Um, I'm just wondering as far as like um, the changes that have happened, is there anything notable that they should be aware of moving forward? Um, I know air ventilation was a big deal and um, you know, is any anything else that you've um, kind of seen that whether it's, you know, air purifiers or, you know, filtration systems or anything along those um, lines that you think would be helpful? Boy, that's a good, good question. Um, I think that the demand for that, like those that you knew, you know, the new air purifier and the HVAC system and all that, I feel like that's at this point, we're a little bit beyond that. I think if we haven't, if your facility hasn't done that already, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, in general, property managers uh, don't always love me because I think big picture, <laughs> they're very nuts and bolts. I've given presentations, um, you know, because I'm talking about, hey, here's some big picture cool things that are going to happen 10 years, 20 years in the future, or here's how I think it's going to go long term. And then they'll come up, up to me after a presentation and be like, yeah, but you know, how does that physically work? You know, like getting really into the nuts and bolts and which I enjoy. Um, but that can also be the challenge. I often find facilities management people are just very, you know, detail oriented and want to know exactly how something's going to work. So that's a long way of me saying that I don't think I have any yeah. great advice for you <laughs> facilities people out there. And I apologize for any damage that I've caused to you. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I'll I'll edit that that part out. Um... No, you're fine. You're fine. And here's the worst is when I give a presentation to like a group of executives and then I'll talk about a lot, a bunch of cool stuff like, oh, here's something that's going on in Europe or something. And then they'll turn around to their facility managers and be like, hey, why aren't we doing this here? And yeah, that's what I should really apologize for. <laughs> you, you you made me think of just one last thing and it's um, the last mile and these cool things that are happening maybe 10 years into the future, we've heard a lot about drone delivery. Do you think it's, is it approaching? Is it a thing that's going to happen or is the last mile, is that just too big of an issue or have you, um, I guess, heard much about that? 
Yeah, I've been tracking it pretty closely, and there have been, if you're talking about air, aerial yeah. drones, um, there's been some experiments. Um, there's, uh, I want to say, a place in West Virginia, Australia. There's a couple of places that have done some sort of small experiences with ordering food and getting it delivered by drone or, or other items. So drones are definitely a part of the future. Mm -hmm. But not in the, hey, I'm going to order a Big Mac and it's going to bring it to me. I think that, um, well, a couple of things. One is drones are already being used in places like China um, to deliver um, not just one individual order, but like, um, for example, out in more rural areas of China, um, they'll do daily shipments via drone. Um, and then somebody will pick it up and do the last mile delivery on like, like a moped or, you know, something like that, a small delivery device. So it's not last mile. It's the mile before the last mile. Um, I think that works. I think we have a lot of FAA issues here in the U S um, and a lot of us aren't comfortable with a lot of drones flying, <laughs> buzzing around. So I think what happens before that is the smaller, um, wheeled vehicles mm -hmm. um and they can be i think people think oh autonomous vehicle it's going to be like a car but without a driver but a lot of these are a lot smaller than that and they're already active in a lot of places you know in san francisco for example there's a lot of places where you can order delivery and it's a little it's a little almost not even R2-D2 size. It's like pretty small, like say half the size of R2-D2 that rolls down the street. And then you get a message when it's at your house or at your apartment, you walk outside, you scan a code and it pops open and your food's inside. I think that things like that, um, deliveries with a variety of autonomous vehicles, some that haven't even been kind of figured out yet. I think that's definitely part of the mm -hmm. future because last mile delivery is so expensive. Mm -hmm. Talk about cost savings, I didn't even think about that, um, the delivery portion of it. Um, it's just so expensive to deliver things. That's why things are usually cheaper if you buy them in the store, is because they don't have to pay to deliver mm -hmm. it to your house. Well, James, this has been phenomenal, like just awesome information. Um, gotten to ask a lot of questions that I, uh, just kind of been randomly floating around in my brain. So. Thanks for uh, going on all these different little tangents awesome. with me. Is there anything I, what, what haven't I asked that you want to share that, you know, would be valuable to the listeners? Um, wow. Great question. Uh, you know, I'm really, you know, I think I touched on this. I think this summer is a return. It's going to be an experience explosion. I think all of us are ready to go out and have fun. And I think the, shift towards services over goods in terms of like what people are spending money on. I think that's going to return this summer. Um, a lot more people going on vacation, hopefully the return of international um, vacations as well as those borders reopen. Um, and there's a lot of cool new uh, experiential concepts out there um, that are popping up. Literally summer pop-ups, you know, like, um, you know, like Instagram museum type places, but uh, there's all kinds of different stuff. So, uh, you know, from there's a Harry Potter store that's opened in Manhattan that's supposed to be amazing, um, totally themed, you know, done up, you know, in the style of the movies. Um, there's a uh, 
a whole mall of experiences in Las Vegas that just opened up called Area 15 that I'm not even going to go into because it's so insane. I'll just say <laughs> so Google Area 15 to figure out what that's all about. Um, but anyway, um, I talk about this stuff all the time on my podcast. It's called Where We Buy. Um, and you can find it on any podcast app or go on the web to wherewebuy.show. And we also do a weekly video kind of talk show, my whole team, uh, called Everything We Know About Retail. And uh, it's on YouTube and LinkedIn, but you can get to it by going to everythingweknow.show. Awesome. Well, I'm going to be checking that out and um, look forward to hearing some more from the cutting edge industry. And uh, James, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Danny. It's been a lot of fun.